Today, Pastor Javen begins our summer reading series from a book entitled, To My Friend Who Left the Faith. We will begin by looking at what deconstruction of the faith is and how we handle that journey. So take a moment now and prepare your heart for today's service. To illustrate a point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings, moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all the money to wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And the young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. Notice the response of the father. While he's, the father still saw his son still a long way off, his father saw him coming and filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him and kissed him. And his son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be even called your son. But his father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the party began. And meanwhile, the older son was in the fields working. And when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house. And he asked one of the servants, what was going on? Your brother's back, he was told. Your father's killed the fattened calf. We are celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and he wouldn't even go in. His father came out and he begged him, but he replied, all these years I've slayed for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all the time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money, prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the story that Jesus told to give us a greater understanding of your love. Your love for us, no matter what stage we are in in our relationship with you, it shows us your love for us. Help us to see that today. Help us to grab a hold of it. Help us to walk in it. And help us to exemplify that love, God, in everything we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you've ever lost a child before or momentarily misplaced a child. <laughs> um, if you're a parent, my guess is you likely have at some point in your parenthood. I know that uh, one of the times that we greatly remember, uh, we were in Disney one year. We were in Animal Kingdom. I don't know if you've ever been there. They have a uh, uh, an area in Animal Kingdom. It's in Dino Land, if you know anything about the parks. They have a playground, basically. And so this is when our kids were much younger. 
And this is the moment, the playground moments are the times when the parents can let the kids play and they find a shaded spot and they relax, all right? So this was our moment to breathe and the kids were playing. And in this park, there's a, there's bridges that go over to another area where they have, where they can dig for fossils. You know, this kind of just a big playground area. So we knew our kids were playing. Griffin told us he was going to go over to the other side and play. And we said, okay. And so we were ready to, to go on about our day, go to the next area of the park. And we said, all right, let's go. I'll walk over here. I'll get Griffin. I walk over to that other side of the playground. He's not there. Is he? Because I didn't see him where we were. So I go back. Jenny doesn't know. She doesn't see him. We can't see him. Griffin, uh, Grayson and Gretchen, I'm not sure where he is. And so we're looking. And this time, my questions are going through my mind. I'm sure through Jenny's. Why didn't he listen? Why did he? There's only one way to get in and out of here. Why did he go out? How did I not see him? What happened here? What was he thinking? What in the world was taking place? And this is only happening in just a matter of just a minute or two. I mean, it wasn't like a long, drawn out time. But Griffin had exited the playground because he thought we had left without him. And so he goes out and he's looking around and he realizes there's a lot of people here. I'm no longer under the presence of mom and dad. I need mom and dad around me right now. So he's got that look on his face. Thankfully, the cast members, employees there are trained. When they see that on kids, they know, "Uh uh-oh, they need mom and dad. So they walk up to him and they they ask him, you know, what's going on? He tells them the last time they saw his parents was in the playground. They start to come back in the playground as we're going out to see if somehow Griffin got out there. And together we see each other. And then all of this questioning about what's going on and what's happening, it's all forgotten because now we're embracing. We're like, Hey, the son of mine has returned. Let's celebrate. Let's kill the fattened calf and let's celebrate. Right. Because we're, but it's in those moments where you're like, it's just that wondering what in the world has happened in this. And just, uh, it can happen in a split second, right? If you're a parent, you know, that feeling likely we're starting a series today where this is our summer reading series. We did this last year. I want to do it again this year and probably going forward. I'll do this in the summer, but, uh, but I want to, to, to share a book that that I've read with you by a pastor or, or an author that maybe you haven't heard before, just to kind of share with you some uh, voices that are out there. But this is a guy by the name of Wade Beard and he's a, he's a pastor. He's an author. And he wrote this book. It's called to my friend who left the faith. And basically what this book is, it's a letter. It's a letter that he's written to a friend. It's a high school friend that he went, uh, grew up with. They went to church together. Uh, when they graduated high school, they both went separate ways. They went different ways. And, uh, and his friend didn't just go a different way and go into school and, and what he was going to do in life. He decided to leave the faith and he decided to leave the church. And so Bearden writes to him expressing his heart towards him and his asking for forgiveness in the way that he responded to him through this and, and what led him to these decisions and and to tackle these things. He tackles topics like doubt and certainty. He tackles the topic of hypocrisy. He tackles the topic of pain and suffering. And the reason he tackles those is that's what this, his friends dealt, dealt with, but it's really something that, that anyone who wants to walk away from the faith and wants to walk away from the church or Christianity it's what most people deal with. It's the questions that most people ask. It's in those areas and in those topics. Maybe you've heard the word deconstruction before when it comes to spiritual uh, spiritual life, to Christianity, to the church. Maybe you've seen people use that word. I'm not on social media a whole lot. I don't really get on Facebook much anymore uh, through the church only. Uh, most social media has become so toxic. I just like, I don't need that. Uh, but I do get on Instagram and I'll scroll reels. Uh, because there's entertainment value there. 
and I like to laugh. And so, um, so I'll scroll and every now and then I will see these reels from people who will use the hashtags deconstructing faith, deconstructing Christianity, deconstructing the church. And they'll be sharing their stories of what they experienced in church, what they experienced through other Christians or with other Christians, what they've experienced in their faith, reasons why they're walking away from some of these things. And when, when I hear them and I listen to them, you know, my heart hurts sometimes. And, and I'm like, man, why didn't you just have conversation? Why wasn't there conversation that was had here? Why wasn't there some talking, some questions asked? And I think the reason there is a lot of times we're afraid of questions. We're afraid of what, why someone may be asking questions and what those questions are going to lead to. And we're afraid we can't answer questions. So we're afraid to even open the door for questions to be asked. But I don't think if, if, and when I use the term deconstruction over these next couple of weeks, I'm using it in the way that the society is using it, talking about looking at their faith. But I don't believe that deconstruction has to mean deconversion. I don't believe that it has to mean that you walk away from the faith completely because you're going through a process of quote unquote deconstruction. Um, there are, uh, some circles that want to put these two as synonymous. Well, once someone starts asking these questions and thinking these thoughts, then they're basically deconverting. They're walking away from the faith. It has to be that your questions can actually lead you to a stronger faith. It, it can be a part of discipleship. It can be a part of growing in Christ, but there's no doubt that being hurt by the church or being hurt by those that call themselves Christians can lead people to begin to look at what they've actually put themselves around and what they're exploring and what their, their faith is about. It can cause them to question. We need to understand that. We need to be honest with that. But at the same time, we need to also realize that we don't typically do this in other areas of our life. We don't have a bad experience with a place of business and then write off every other business that's like that business. We'll find another business, maybe, but we just don't write them off altogether. I don't know really anyone that's completely autonomous in this life and does everything on their own without the need of any other support system out there, right? I mean, it's, uh, so we have to think about that. But the church, on the flip side of that, the church has to understand that criticism or questions isn't necessarily something, we don't have to take that to heart and be offended by it. I mean, if you look at it with church is not a business, but if you look at businesses, all businesses receive criticism. They have questions that come to them, but they don't stop working towards their purpose and their vision just because they get asked a question about why they do what they do. In fact, they may take those things, listen to them, see if there's actually any validity to it and then learn from it. Right. I mean, you, you, uh, you think about deconstruction, you think about it when it's not done right, it can lead someone to hurt others. It can lead someone to hurt themselves, but when it's done well, it can lead you to actually grow. When you look at home remodeling shows, right? Uh, and you watch these shows and they buy a home with the purpose of renovating, going in and fixing something up. You know, you're, you're typically watching the show. Typically the same pattern plays out in all these shows. My wife gets so frustrated when I call that out, but it's the same pattern that plays out in all these shows. They get in, they're going to remodel. Guess what? They're going to find a problem bigger than what they thought they had. Right. And that problem leads to some drama that leads to a commercial, right? Because it makes you stick around, want to see what's going to happen when we come back from the break. They come back from the break. Now, when they come back from the break, are they sitting there yelling, burn it down to the ground, burn the whole thing down. The whole thing stinks. The whole thing's wrong. The whole thing's bad. It's got the problem in this one area. We need to burn it all down. No, they don't do that. What do they do? They say, we need to fix what's wrong here. 
and they take out what's not good and they rebuild to make it better, right? It's, it's a process to make the whole thing good. Now, think about Jesus and his sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus is one of the most popular sermons that, that people know about. We read it in Matthew 5, 6, 7. He's standing on this hillside. He's teaching people. Think about this. He's teaching them and he tells them, you've heard it said, but I say. He challenges their understanding of what they know about faith and what they know about how they've been called to relate to God and relate to others. For example, he tells them, he said, you've heard it said, don't commit murder. He says, well, I tell you, don't even hate your brother or sister. Don't hate anyone. If you have hate in your heart, this is just as bad. He takes what they think they know about a topic from their faith and he goes deeper with it. He challenges it. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say, don't lust. Lusting is just as bad as the actual act. He tells them, you've heard it said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Exactly. He tells them, but I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He challenges their thinking and what they know about how they follow God in their faith. He challenges it. Peter and his disciples, they had an understanding of the Messiah, the way the Messiah was supposed to be and what the Messiah was supposed to be about. Jesus had this beautiful moment with his disciples. He asked them, who do people say I am? And they tell him who he, who he says he is. And then he says, well, who do you say I am? And Peter gives this beautiful uh, uh, description to Jesus of who he is. And Jesus says, that's, that's, that's it, Peter. It's on that truth. It's on that foundation. The church is going to be built. And then Jesus goes to, to explain that I've got to die. I've got to go. I've got to give my life. I'm going to be crucified. And Peter steps up and says, no, 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 no. You, you're not going to have to do that. That's not going to have to happen to you. You're the Messiah. And Jesus then looks at Peter, who he just prays for his answer and says, get behind me, Satan. Because he has to challenge his mindset and his understanding about what he believes to be the, the Messiah to be. In Peter's mind, he's, the Messiah is solely conquering king. But Jesus says, the first thing that the Messiah has to do is to be a suffering servant. And he has to get him to understand that because Peter is looking at these things from his human concerns, the way he is, he is understood in his own mind what the Messiah is supposed to be, trying to understand the Messiah. And this is where, and this is what I'm trying to do today, this morning, is just trying to lay a foundation of understanding what's happening here with those that ask questions, if with you, if you may be asking questions, with how our response should be to those that may be asking questions, laying down a foundation of what we struggle with, what we're up against. So let me explain this a, a little bit more uh, to, to set a foundation too for these next few weeks. Genesis chapter two, verse seven. Moses writes this, this passage. He says, then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. All right. So remember that you got God forming man from dust. You came from dust. You are nothing that you're just dust. Paul talks about this in his letters. We are dust. Okay. So he forms the man from the ground. We're dust. Then he breathes the breath of life into the man's nostrils. He breathes life into him, right? So he breathes his spirit into the man. Then it says that the man became a living person. He became a living being. He gave life to his soul. So let me, let me break this down in visuals and then talk about how our wrestling and, and what we're struggling with and why so many questions come, okay, in our life. So 
Here we go. We're going to go to, we are made, we have a body that we are created with that relates to his creation, right? God gave us a body. He gave us a mind. He gave us sensory. He gave us feeling. He gave, so we, we understand things based on how we feel. He gave us desires. He gave us emotions. We have all these things. We have his body to relate to all the creation that he has, uh, has created around us. Okay. And, uh, and a part of relating to that is relating to him as well. But in relating to him originally, when he created man, what did we see in Genesis chapter two, verse seven, it says he breathed life. He breathed into the man and he, he breathed into, that was his spirit. That is a word that's used for spirit. That's all throughout scripture. So <laughs> we're created with a spirit. Now that's, I'm not saying that's what your spirit looks like. You just can't really find good images for a spirit. Okay. So you got a spirit to relate to him, your spirit and in your body helps you relate to him. Okay. And so what it does is that makes you a living being in, in God. And it gives you a soul. It gives life to your soul, a soul that's united by the spirit, united by the flesh connected to the father. Okay. So you, you tracking with me? This is where we are. Listen, I like things practical. I grew up. One of my favorite movies when I was younger was dumb and dumber. Don't hold that against me, but that's just the intellect of my mind. All right. So, so we've got, this is, this is what's happening. We're, we're created. We're connected to the father through the spirit. It gives life to our soul. Now, if you remember the story of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve was put in the garden. God told him you got all all this fruit you can eat from all these trees. They're producing fruit. You got fruit over there. You got fruit over there. You got fruit over there. You got fruit over there, but there's this one tree. Don't eat from that. Don't eat from that tree. And so the enemy, the, the, the serpent, he comes in and he tempts Eve on the one tree. You always wonder like why I got all this stuff around me. This one thing is always bothering me. This one thing. I always deal with this one thing. The enemy knows you're one thing, right? And so he, he comes to him. He says, do you, do you eat? why don't you eat from this fruit? This fruit was really good. Well, if I eat of that, I'll die. Ah, you won't really die. That's the enemy's response. That's what we're told. The serpent's response is. And so Eve takes the fruit. She eats the fruit. She doesn't die physically, but she does die. She dies. The spirit dies. The spirit the, the, that God breathes into them. It does. So now what she is left, what Adam is left, what creation is left with is a body, a flesh that's trying to bring life to your soul. But your soul is now lost because it can't do it without the spirit. And so your body, your flesh is trying to relate to God in a way that only relates to God through your own understanding, through your desires, through the way you feel, through the way you see things. And you're trying to connect with God. And there's a problem there. And so this is why Paul writes in his letters, he says that, that without Christ, we are dead in our trespasses. We are dead in our sin. Because when we are born now, because of the curse of sin, we'll talk more about that when we get to the last week of the series, when we look at pain, suffering, because of the curse of sin, we are born with a dead spirit. We have a body and we have a soul. We're a living being. But our spirit is dead and our soul is not connecting to the father and we're lost. And all we're feeding is our flesh until we come to accept Christ for who he is. This is why Jesus sat down with Nicodemus, John chapter three. You probably know John chapter three because of John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 
That's a powerful verse. Sums up everything that Jesus did. But there is a lot in John 3. I encourage you to sit down this week and just dive into John chapter 3. But it's in John chapter 3 that Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee, is coming to Jesus and trying to wrap his mind around all that Jesus... Pharisee who understands the law. He understands everything about who God is and what God has taught them as a Jewish family, as a Jewish culture. But now Jesus is coming and saying, well, you've got to relate to the Father through me. Because if you don't relate to the Father through me, you're not really relating to the Father. And Nicodemus is trying to wrap his mind all, all through this. And Jesus is sitting with him and says, this is where you've got to understand. You have got to be born again. And Nicodemus has the most common sense question that anyone of us would ask. How am I, as a grown man, going to be born again? All right? I don't have to go into detail to describe that. That's, probably, that's impossible, right? Nicodemus understood that. And Jesus is like, just like you're born of water, you have to be born of the Spirit. You're born again. Your spirit is born again. Your spirit is given new life. Right? So you kind of look at it, you got a little baby new spirit in you, okay? Now, that's not to say that the spirit of God is little and inadequate. The spirit of God is completely adequate. But your walk in the spirit is new. And your walk in the spirit is fresh. Your walk in the spirit is young. That's why all throughout the New Testament and the scripture, you see it written over and over and over again about how you have to grow and mature in the spirit and in your, and in your faith and in your walk with Christ. Yes, you are saved by, the, by faith in, the, in, in Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. You are saved through faith by the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. His righteousness now put on you. You receive that. But there's still a maturing process that has to take place in your walk as you grow in him. And that's why, see, what you've been doing all this time is you have been feeding your flesh. You've constantly been feeding your flesh. That's all you know. But then when you come to Christ, now you have to stop feeding your flesh and you have to start feeding the Spirit. The Spirit, you're born again of the Spirit. The soul is redeemed, but you're learning to follow the Spirit. And you're growing. And there's a maturing that's taking place. And this is what's happening. This is the process. It's interesting. I'm not saying that these things happen in Scripture because they're illustrating this point, but it's interesting to me. When, when Adam and Eve have their kids, they've got Cain, they've got Abel. Cain is the older, Abel is the younger. And Cain brings an offering and Abel brings an offering. Cain's offering is not accepted because of how he brought it. Abel's offering, the younger, it's accepted. Well, Cain doesn't appreciate this. And so he gets angry and he wants to take out his younger brother. And God tries to speak to him. But Cain isn't listening to the spirit. He's not listening to God. And God's saying, you've got to, the flesh is, you're listening to your flesh. You're letting your flesh rise up. You're angry. You need to listen. You need to pay attention. Sin is waiting. It's trying to master you. If you don't master it, it's going to master you. And he's saying, you, you got to pay, pay attention to me. Cain ignores the spirit. He listens to his flesh. He kills his brother. Because no older wants their younger to get to have the better or to, to be the one that's celebrated. You get uh, Abraham, the promise was spoken to, to Abraham of what was going to happen through the nation. And he gives him Isaac. Isaac gets married and him and Rebecca are going to have quit. Uh, kids and they're having twins and God speaks to Rebecca and he tells Rebecca in you are two rival nations and the older is going to have to serve the younger. 
Esau was the older, Jacob was the younger. And the older was going to have to serve the younger. Now Esau didn't like that at first, but he eventually came to peace with it. And Jacob had to learn as well how to relate to God through all of it. But the old, it, you, if you've noticed through your life, it's not easy for the older to serve the younger, right? If you have siblings who are older and younger, you don't typically leave the house, but you don't really want to put anybody in charge. That's a problem. But you're definitely probably not putting the younger in charge of the older, are you? I mean, the older doesn't typically serve the younger. My dad worked at, uh, before he died, he worked at Powers Funeral Home with Robbie Powers. And uh, my, my nephew, his grandson, uh, he worked there as well after he graduated college. But he came after my dad was there. And, uh, and uh, Jonathan, some of you may know him, he's an usher here, but he, um, he end, ended up becoming a director at the funeral home. And so that means he got to direct things. So that means he got to direct my dad, his granddad, his older granddad. Now, my dad, who's older, did not appreciate being directed by his younger grandson. There was one day that Jonathan told him, asked him, he said, I need you to go work the parking lot for this funeral. Apparently, dad didn't like working the parking lot. So he, he didn't like to be directed, didn't really like to be directed by anybody. But he went to Robbie and he said, and he expressed his concerns. And Robbie said, well, you're the one that told encouraged me to hire him. So, I mean, you're going to have to do what he directed you. But the older doesn't typically like to serve the younger. That's the battle that we have. Because our flesh is older than the spirit when we're born again of the spirit. And we have been feeding and feeding and feeding the flesh. But now we have to feed the spirit and the spirit has to take control of the flesh. And that's the problem we wrestle with. Paul talks about it all through Romans he talks about it in Galatians. He talks about it throughout, throughout Scripture. And we have to understand this and we have to grab this. And that's where it's important. But that's the, that's the foundation I want us to understand. But I want us to go into this uh, text that we read from this story that Jesus tells, the parable. We got in this parable, there's an older brother, there's a younger brother. I'm not saying that these two exemplify what I just talked about. But you got an older brother, you got a younger brother in this text. And it's a parable that's called the parable of the prodigal son. Bearden writes in his book, he says, we call this story the parable of the prodigal son. But we, we should really call it the parable of the prodigal sons. Because you see, it's possible to be a prodigal without ever leaving home. Just look at the elder brother with all of his vanity and all of his lack of grace. There's an aspect of the brother, he's saying, the older brother, that is a prodigal. And the tagline of his book is a letter from a prodigal to a prodigal. And we often look at the story and we look at the story and we say that the, the son who left, that's the main character of the story. But I don't think that's the main character of the story. Rembrandt did a painting in the 17th century. He was moved by the prodigal story. He painted this painting called The Return of the Prodigal Son. You look at the contrast in light and dark and you look at where the emphasis is being put on in his painting and the emphasis is being put on the embrace of the father to his son. Because in reality, the father is the main character of the story. The father is mentioned 12 times in about 20 verses. Because it's as extravagant as the lifestyle of the younger brother was, the younger son, as extravagant as his lifestyle was outside of the relationship with his father, the father's love was just as extravagant, if not more. As, as hardened and as closed off as the older son was to the younger son when he returned, the father was open 
and receptive. And he wanted to embrace his younger son. We look at this passage, and just like with other passages of Scripture we read, and sometimes we come across things like this, and we say, well, that's an interesting story. That's a neat story. That's a neat passage. That's, that's, that's cool. But, but then the more we read it, the more we start to see ourselves in some of these things. The more we start to see ourselves in some of these stories and some of these parables, especially that Jesus told. Because when Jesus tells these parables, there's always someone that he's relating to. But the beauty of it is, is not only do we see ourselves, we see the Father as well. Because the Father in this story is the, the Father, God. It's who Jesus is referring to as the Father. And so we look at this and we have to consider who we are, but we need to understand the love of the Father too, to all of us. But let's first consider who we might be in this story. When Bearden did this, when he looked at this story and he was looking at who I might be in this passage or who I might be from this standpoint, he said, I am the elder brother. I didn't abandon the church. I never stopped praying. He said, but I became a prodigal. I ran away when others needed me. When you needed me, to his friend he wrote. And listen to what he says. I chose to pass judgment instead of grace. That's a challenging statement. Because we think about that, we wonder, we look at our life. When, when we, if I know someone in this life who have asked questions, who have pondered, who have wondered, who's trying to get an understanding, have I been more quick to pass judgment or share grace? What's been my response first? See, you may not be the one that's, quote, deconstructing faith, but how have you responded to those who are asking questions, who are wondering? What we have to see in this older son is that there is a self-righteousness about him that affects, it affects how he sees his younger brother, but the self-righteousness also affects how he sees his own father's grace. It affects how he sees the love of his father towards the whole family. That's what happens with self-righteousness. The older brother, he never left the presence and the provision of his father. He never walked out of that physically, but he did in his heart because everything about him was all, all he was focused on was look how long I've stayed. Look how well I've done. Look at all that I've accomplished by being with you. Look at me and look at, look at what, what I've done. It's never, it's always been about his own faithfulness. He wasn't looking at the faithfulness of his father. He was so blind to the faithfulness of his father, he thought that because his father was celebrating and throwing a party, that his father had never given him anything. When his father has to come to him and say, you've been in my presence the whole time. Everything I have is yours. He neglects to realize. He forgets. He forgets the true provision and the beauty of his father. Because all he's focused on is all he's doing. And he disowns his younger brother. He disowns him instead of choosing to, uh, to open his arms and accepting, he condemns him. He's, he disparages him. He, he tosses accusations to him. He's angry instead of receptive. He separates himself. He doesn't even want to go in the house when his brother returns. Jesus tells us, he says he stayed outside. He didn't even want to have anything to do with it. And when his father comes out to talk to him, he doesn't even call him his brother. Scripture says he calls him your son. He doesn't want to have anything to do. And there's a self-righteousness about this older brother. That's a turnoff. And we need to understand 
if we carry a self-righteousness about us, that's a turnoff to those, to others. They, they don't want to have anything to do with that. But if you're someone that has walked away or considering walking away from the faith or considering walking away from church, I want to encourage you today. God doesn't, he's not impressed with people's self-righteousness either. I mean, he spoke all the way back and throughout through the prophet Isaiah and said that your own righteousness is like filthy rags. Yes, we are, we are saved to do good works, but it's not about our good works. We do good because of his faithfulness to us. It's in response to what he's done for us. But I also want to encourage, if you're considering walking away from church, walking away from the faith because of things you've seen, questions you had, I want to encourage you to look at the younger son in this parable and just to consider some things, to think about some things. Jesus doesn't really give us a reason why the younger son left. He kind of leaves that ambiguous. We don't know exactly why he left. Maybe it was because he didn't like the way the older brother treated him. Maybe he didn't like the, the actions of his older brother. He thinks he's better than me. Maybe he didn't like the fact that he had responsibilities in the house. We have responsibilities. Maybe he didn't like those responsibilities. Maybe he thought he, he had a view of the father that once he got out and once he got out on his own, he realized that view that I had of the father was actually a wrong view of the father. Maybe he just wanted to try to do this whole thing on his own. We don't know the exact reason, but what we do know is Jesus tells the story and he exemplifies by saying that the younger son goes to his dad and says, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to be, I want what you can give me. So give me my inheritance. I want the blessings you can provide for me. I want all the promises you've made to me, but I don't want to be here and I don't want to be under you and I don't want to be in your house. I don't want to be a part of your family. So you're dead to me. This family's dead to me. This place is dead to me. Just give me what you promised me. I'm out. And that's what happens a lot of times with people who walk away. Now, in relation to the church, I want you to consider something. When you walk away from the church and you say, well, I'm walking away from the church. I'm not walking away from faith. I just, I want you to think about something. Can you really walk away from God's church and still love the Father? I don't think you can. I don't think you can love the Father and hate his bride. The church is the bride of Christ. That's what he established. That's the movement that he started. And, it, and, and I don't think we're in a place to think we can have a position that's any different than what Christ has about his church. Now I get it. The church is not just a a place. It's not a building. It's not, the church is not this brick building that we're sitting in and meeting in right now. We are the church and we, as a part of the church are part of a whole bigger church that meets in other buildings and other places and other homes and gathers together to grow in their faith in God. Is how the church works and how is how the church operates. You see it in the New Testament. There's churches over here. There's churches over here. There's churches over here. You see all throughout the letters that had to be written by, written by the apostles that people in the church were having problems with each other in the church. But there was never a discussion about, well, just leave it, burn it to the ground. It was how to work through it. Because the church is there for all of us to do the one another's together. Pastor Brian talked about this a few weeks ago in his message. We have so many one another's throughout the New Testament. There's about a hundred one another statements. 
And we're called to love one another. We're called to build one another up. We're called to spur one another on. Have you ever been spurred? You know? Some of you, maybe you got spurs that jingle, jangle, jingle. But have you, have you, has anyone ever used those spurs? We've been called, why? Not, not to bring harm, not to condemn each other, but to help each other in love. We speak the truth in love to grow for, with one another. The whole, the whole thing about the church is that a body of different people that has different backgrounds and different ideologies and different upbringings that vote different, that see life different, but they come together saved under one name, Jesus Christ. And they bring those differences together and they grow together and they make an impact for the community of God together, for the kingdom of God together, despite their differences united in one name. That's the church. That's the beauty of the church. And Jesus knew this. So so see, we've got these finite minds living under an infinite mind and its direction. We'll talk more about this in a couple weeks when we talk about hypocrisy. But this is what we're called to. And this is what Jesus works through. So we do this together so that the world looks on and they say, you can actually do that? You mean we all don't have to hang out with people just like us in order to get along and to make an impact? Another thing I want you to see from this story is once the son had walked out of all of the father's provision for him, he wanted what the father could give him. But once he had walked away out of all that, because see, you can walk far enough away from God that you walk out of his covering. Once he got out of that, he had no other option but to turn to something else. So notice Luke 15, 15, just one verse I want to point back out to. He said, Jesus said, telling the story, he said, the young son persuaded a local farmer to hire him. That word hire, Greek scholars tell us, is a word that means to glue, to cement, to join, to fasten together. So basically what this young son did was because he realized, you know, I want to do this life on my own. But the whole time he was doing it on his own, he was still using the father's blessings. But then when the father's blessings weren't there, he couldn't do it on his own. That's the whole thing. As independent as we think we want to be, we're never going to be independent. You are going to be bound to something. You're going to be glued to something. You're going to be dependent on something. That's why you go back to what we talked about earlier. We have Our flesh has to surrender to the Spirit. Because you're either going to be bound to your flesh, led into a life of sin, or you're going to be bound to the Spirit that God has given you and you follow God. But here's what I want you to know. If you've walked away from the faith, you walked away from truth, walked away from anything, you're considering it. Even through the questions, the Father never stops loving you. Never stops loving you. God loves you when you break his heart. Deuteronomy 21, there was a law that said if a son rebels or is stubborn, brings embarrassment to a family, that that son can be taken to the elders of the community and the elders can then stone the son. It was a law. And Jesus is telling this story and he's telling the story to a bunch of Pharisees. They knew that law. 
But Jesus is saying this father doesn't do that. This father doesn't send his son who's rebellious and stubborn. He doesn't send him to be stoned. He just lets him go. Even though his heart's broken, he lets him go. Because the father still loves him. And he loves him when he wanders. All throughout the word of God in scripture, you see where God's love for those who follow him and those who even reject him, his love is there even when they're wandering and he's still pursuing them. He loves you. He loves you unconditionally and he celebrates you when you return. He doesn't scold you with questions and what were you thinking? He welcomes you and he celebrates you. This father gave his son his best robe, which was likely his own robe. He gives him a ring and a sandal. What does that mean? He's acknowledging him as his son. And he's putting those things on and said, this is a son. And he's welcoming, welcoming me back. There's no shame. The only shame that was experienced in that day, in that moment, and in that story was when the father lifted up his own robe to run out to his son. The father took the shame. Why did the father do that? Well, the obvious answer is because he loved his son and he missed him and he was glad that he was coming. He was back home. But two, if you remember the law, if any of his neighbors chose to listen to that law and just pick up stones and start to throw them at this son as he's coming back home, the father is running to his son and embracing him and covering him. Jesus doesn't tell that, tell us that that was going to happen. If we think about the law and we think about the way the mind worked, the father was the bottom line. The father was showing love to his son and he was embracing his son with love. And that's exactly what the father did for us. It's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. He took the shame of the cross. He bore the shame of the cross. Just after that law in Deuteronomy 21, it says, I don't believe it's a coincidence that this is right after that. It says that curse is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus took our curse. He took the curse that comes with sin and he took our place. The way back to the father is always to the far country. And the far country is anywhere we are outside of the will of the father. Whether we've left and walked away or whether we're still in the house, but just not under his will and in his heart because of how we act and how we treat others. But the father is always there and he's always saying, welcome home. We're encouraging you to come inside. The reason Jesus told these parables, there's three parables in Luke chapter 15. The reason he tells these parables, he's talking to the Pharisees and the Pharisees didn't like the fact that Jesus ate with sinners. He didn't, they didn't like the fact that Jesus embraced those who weren't Jewish and embraced those that those whose lifestyles were outside of the following of God. And Jesus let them know the whole reason I'm doing this is because the Father loves them and wants them to be a part of the family just as much as you are. And Bearden writes this statement. He says, in the past, I've spoken to you without first letting you know that I heard you. Or even worse, I avoided you because I didn't want to hear you. He said, I only wanted you to hear me. And then he says, this, he says, I want to care about you more than I care about walking away from a discussion, feeling like I bested you. You're not a goal. 
You're not an intellectual exercise. You're not just a face. He says, you're my friend. This is the mentality that we need to carry because if you are a follower of Christ and you are part of his body and you have, you're following him the best you can and you come across someone you know that may start asking questions or maybe wondering things or you have a friend that says, I can't do this anymore. How are you going to respond? We need this mentality. And the only way that we can journey with someone is for us to never forget our relationship with the father. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, he was blind. He became blind. But he made this powerful statement. You may have heard him say it or heard it from him before, read before. He said, two things I see clearly. Christ is a great savior and I am a great sinner. We can't ever forget, no matter how long we've been a part of church, no matter how long we have been saved, no matter how long we have been a Christian, we are still sinners who were saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. We may not battle with things the same way other people battle. But we're without him, we're broken and lost. Paul, the Apostle Paul, many believe he died in 66 A.D., It's believed that around 56 AD, 10 years before that, he wrote his first letter to the church of Corinth. And in that letter, he described himself as the chief of all apostles. It's believed about seven years later is when he wrote Romans, what we see Romans, his letter to the church in Rome. About seven years after he wrote that letter to Corinth and he describes himself in the letter to Rome, he describes himself as the chief of all saints. And then about two years before he passes, He writes a letter to his spiritual son, Timothy. And he describes himself to Timothy as the chief of sinners. That doesn't sound like progression, does it? The chief of apostles, the chief of saints, to the chief of sinners. But see, I think that visualizes so beautifully this journey we're on. Because the more we feed the Spirit and the more we grow in the Spirit and let the Spirit connect us to the Father, the more we learn just who we are outside of Christ. And we're not as good as we thought we were. We are all sinners, broken, lost, our soul lost without the saving grace of Jesus Christ. The father loved both of these sons unconditionally. Both of them. His love and his salvation is for the wandering, lost child outside of the covering of the father. But it's also for the sanctimonious hypocrite who can't look past his own goodness. And it's for everyone in between. His saving grace is for us all. So as we close today, I want to make just two statements to those who are outside of the faith, walk away or considering it, and those who are in it. If you walked away from the faith or you're considering it, despite how anyone in the church has ever made you feel, God still loves you. He always has. He always will. And he wants you to be a part of his family. Family life can be difficult sometimes. But you're a child of God and a child has a home. And he wants you to be a part of his family. 
And he wants you to be a part of the faith with him. He loves you. He never stopped loving you. To those of us who are in the family, always consider how you respond to those who may say to you, I can't do this anymore. I can't live up to that. I can't live that way. To those that say I have questions, to those that express brokenness to you, remind them that you're broken too. That's why we need Jesus. Love them. Don't ever stop loving them. The Father's love is unconditional. Ours should be as well. And the love of God is powerful. And when we show that love, it can be powerful as well. If you need prayer in any way today, we would love for you to reach out to us. You can go to our website, bwccambin.com, go to our contact page. You'll find the link there to uh, request prayer or send us anything that you uh, would like to communicate with us today. Or you can also simply text the word prayer to 803-676-7566. And we will be back in touch with you to find out how we can be in prayer for you. God bless you. We hope that you have a great week.